Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Lily, can I ask you, how old are you? Oh, more than 80, no. I born in Iraq. That's Lili Saig, who came to Israel from Basra in 1951, when she was 18. Now she lives in Nes Tziona, near Rehovot. She has nine grandchildren, 16 great-grandchildren. In late September this year, Lili was coming back to Israel after visiting her son in the States. Beverly Hills, they live. The son drove her to LAX, she checked in. Uh, actually, uh, I... Uh, I have a ticket in the merchant department. In the economy class? Yeah, yes. But as I guess sometimes happens if you're an elderly woman traveling on a long flight, she was upgraded. Yeah, they gave me a seat in the first class. This was Lily's first time in first class. So she got on the plane, was shown to her seat, given a tall glass of champagne, a hot towel... And she said hi to the gentleman sitting next to her. He was good-looking, in his late 30s, wearing sunglasses. His name? 
West Kenya. Kenya, his name? It was Kanye West. Kanye West. That's it. That's it. Had you ever heard of Kanye West before? No. I'm not the age. <laughs> There's maybe my grandson, my grandchildren, my children, but not me. Kanye was on his way to Israel for a show, and Lily, she had some advice for him. I told him, okay, when you go to the show, you speak Hebrew, I will teach you. He said, okay. <laughs> I, told him, <laughs> yeah. I told him, you just tell them, Shalom, say shalom. He say shalom. I am very glad to be with you. Ani sameach, ani sameach. When we reach to the third word, lehiyot uh, itchem, here he stopped. He said, I can't. I can say this word. This is very hard for me. So you gave Kanye West a Hebrew lesson. <laughs> you know, he is a very nice gentleman. He's a really gentleman, yes. He, lo- he looks good. He is handsome. I wanted to speak with him more, but some, uh, I smiled to him, he smiled. What happened when you landed in Ben-Gurion? When we arrived, they came and took him. He went, he didn't tell me bye. <laughs> How could you be so heartless? How could you be so cold as the winter wind when it breeze show? Just remember that you talking to me. So what do you think, Lily? Nice, very nice, very nice. You like it? Yes. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman. From PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. And our episode today, during what is one of the most travel-packed weeks of the year, now boarding. Stories from the airport. So just recently I flew from Boston to L.A. on what Todd, a Logan Airport TSA officer, told me was one of the busiest days of the year. Yeah, it's going to be busy. I'm going to be here for Christmas and New Year's. Really? Yeah. It was the Friday before Christmas, and all the Boston-area students had just finished with finals and were flying home for the break. TSA pre-check of first class. I got there at like 4 a.m. for a 6.30 flight, and the lines were snaking all the way into the parking lot. Babies were crying, parents were exasperated, students were nervously checking their phones every two minutes. No one was having a good time. Not the TSA officers who were trying to maintain some order, and definitely not the passengers, many of whom were yelling and screaming and complaining. And the whole time I was thinking to myself, you know, this feels familiar. There are a few things that almost everyone who's visited Israel has in common. They've walked through Jerusalem's old city, they've floated on the Dead Sea, they've climbed Masada, and they've had some sort of saga at Ben-Gurion Airport. For a lot of people, including me, landing there is an emotional experience, a homecoming. Remember passengers used to sing Hevenu Shalom Alechem and clap and cry as soon as the plane landed. But for others, the reception is more complicated. If you're Arab, if you look Arab, if you visited an Arab country, prepare yourself for an endless stream of questions. 
But even if you haven't, or you're not, it's not always smooth sailing. Tourists are often asked if they're Jewish, and if they went to Sunday school, or keep kosher, or know what's on the Passover plate. Not long ago, my sister Dana came back home to Israel and stood behind a chassid in line for passport control. He had a black hat, black coat, long earlocks, straight out of central casting. The guy was so religious he could barely make eye contact with the young female officer who was questioning him. But she just looked right at him and said, So, uh, Moshe Menachem, you are a Jew? Israeli airport security is really tight. And it's a huge issue that gets a lot of people, both Israelis and foreigners, riled up. That brings us to our first story today. The story of Nathan and Emily. Act 1. Think very, very carefully. Nathan Filer and Emily Parker from Bristol in the UK had been going out for just over two years when, in April 2012, they flew into Ben-Gurion Airport. This was their second time there. And the flight was smooth. I don't remember it, so I'm I'm guessing it was smooth. I've got no I've got no got no memory of the flight at all. So quite nervous when we landed. Yeah. Suddenly. So you go through. It's a nice airport, isn't it? It's uh it's very modern, and I think there's some sort of big round atrium or something that that we went through, and then um uh, and then got to the passport booths, and then the rapid questions start. We were asked the purpose of our visits. What's your father's name? Had we been before? What's your father's father's name? That's when things started to get complicated. They were taken into a side room for further questioning. A couple of hours went by with us there together. um, And it's during this time that they uh, would ask us for um, some information about ourselves. So they wanted our names, they wanted phone numbers, they wanted our contacts at home, they wanted our emails, and they wanted our email uh, passwords. Did you guys talk? amongst yourselves as to whether you wanted to give them your password? Uh, Yeah, we felt like that if we didn't, we would definitely not be able to get through the airport because that would be enough for them to say, well, you're hiding something. But obviously it's a massively personal... You know, we didn't feel we were guilty of anything or it wasn't like we had anything wrong to hide. So you're sort of doing the the, the the baffled tourist. And, I mean, my stomach was just turning, you know. Um, I've got a lot of respect for authority figures. I'm not a kind of natural uh, rebel, really, like, <laughs> like someone in a uniform or whatever. I'm like, oh, well, no, I should, I should definitely do what they say, you know. So it, it kind of goes against the, the, the grain. You know, I'm not proud to admit that. But when they uh, ask for our, our, our email passwords... We uh, we weren't going to give those over because um, I hadn't deleted. If, if they did go into my email and they typed ISM or Palestine or you know anything at all, they'd just be you know it's, it's Gmail. Every email you've ever sent is there, isn't it? And we hadn't gone through and done anything about that. So so we were. I was never going to hand hand that over, and that meant straight away we were in we were in conflict with with them because uh, straight away they were then suspicious. If the security folks had gone through Nathan and Emily's emails, they would have discovered that just six months earlier, they had visited the West Bank, and that they were members of an organization called the ISM, or International Solidarity Movement. 
which, according to its website, is a Palestinian-led movement committed to resisting the long-entrenched and systematic oppression and dispossession of the Palestinian population, using non-violent direct-action methods and principles. As you can imagine, affiliation with the ISM does not curry much favor at Ben-Gurion Airport. They're certainly not popular with the Israeli authorities. I mean, they're not popular because they're one of the more effective organizations. I'm, I'm not a spokesperson for them, you know, but I go back and, and, and sort of stress, you know, they're a non-violent uh, direct action organization. And, uh, and that's a, a very effective uh, way of making a point. ISM volunteers from all over the world come to the West Bank and Gaza to stand alongside Palestinian farmers, protect olive groves, teach at schools, demonstrate at checkpoints. And in October 2011, Nathan and Emily decided to sign up for one of their missions, in Hebron, where they mainly volunteered at the local Cordoba school. This was their first time in the region, and the experience had a profound impact on them. There's not very often, is there, in your adult life, I suppose, that you like have a day that is nothing like a day you've had before. You know, mostly our, our days are pretty similar, or a, a lot of them is the, you know, the same old, same old. But certainly going there, you know, I'd not been involved in uh, activism work at, at, at all. Uh, I'd not been to that part of the world at all, you know, and so... Uh, it was it was com- completely new experiences. Yeah, it was just the first time we went. It was an amazing. Still feels like the most certainly one of the most important experiences of of my life. Well, both of us, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we just met so many lovely people and um, you know inspiring people and yeah, it wasn't about being like excited to be in like the protests and things, was it? You know, we were passionate about. Uh, the, the human rights issues and things, that that was what we were there for. After three weeks in Hebron, they returned to their lives in Bristol. Emily worked for a community mental health team, and Nathan was just finishing his first novel, The Shock of the Fall, which later won the prestigious Costa Award and was translated into 30 languages. Half a year later, they decided to go back to Hebron for a second round of volunteering. That's how they found themselves in that interrogation room, where they were asked to hand over their email passwords. If the authorities at the airport know that you're with the International Solidarity Movement, they will not let you in. No country has to let people in. Uh, So, you know, it doesn't matter that it's a a perfectly legal organisation, even under Israeli uh, law. If they know you're part of that, they won't let you in. And we were a part of that, so we had reason to be reason to be nervous and then quite quickly they separated us I was um, you know trying to be polite and small talk and I asked their names you know because they'd asked my name of, of, of well, they knew my name they confirmed it they seen my passport and I said uh, you know what's uh, what's your name and uh, the, the guy sat at the table uh, said uh, his name was Israel and for for a heartbeat, I I think I just believed him. I just you know his name is and and then looked to the uh, to the guy standing beside beside him, and he said his name was Tel Aviv, and I I thought ah, the flow of information is only going one way, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and you know I I, I laugh because it does uh, you know it it amuses me, but again at, at the time this was. Uh, 
yeah, this was frustrating. And uh, yeah, I felt uh, angry and upset and and also feeling like, I, you know, I, I still don't know what's happened to Emily. I don't know whether she's going to get into the country or not. I need to try and make sure that, that I do. I don't know what she said. You know, so much going on in my in my head at this point. Nathan tried to get some answers. He asked what was going on with Emily. And uh, Tel Aviv said uh, she will be deported. What were you told? Were you told that he was being deported? Uh, I I can't remember if at that stage... I feel like I was was. more interested in your fate than you were in mine. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what are you doing with my girlfriend? What's happening to her? What's going on? (laughs) But no one was interested in answering Nathan's queries. They were the ones asking the questions. Before he asked about ISM... Uh, Israel uh, leaned across the the table and looked at me and said, now I'm going to ask you a question, but before you answer, I need you to think very, very carefully because I already know the answer. Then I I lied, lied lied about all of that. At one point I said, um, again, trying to sort of fill the space, and I said, what, do you you think I'm a terrorist? And at this point, like it was like the whole atmosphere in the in the room changed. And he just stopped and said, "Say that again." And at that point, I was quite frightened, I suppose, because I just like I'd said the word. I suddenly thought oh, I've said the word terrorist. It's just being a a scaredy cat, I suppose, really. But I I kind of said it again, and he said, "No, if we thought you were a terrorist, you wouldn't be." Here talking to me now. How long were you interrogated for? Hours and hours. hours. Yeah, hours. Yeah, I think by now, it's, it's now a good six hours has probably gone by. At the end of all this, no big surprise here, Nathan and Emily were each individually told that they could not enter the country and that they would be deported back to the UK. We flunked our interviews, yeah, we flunked our interviews. Their passports were stamped with a big rejection. Their fingerprints were taken, they were photographed with some special 3D camera, and then they were driven in an armored vehicle to the detention center, right near the airport, where they'd spend the night till their plane left the next morning. That's where they first saw each other, after all those hours of interrogation apart. And then we were searched pretty much straight away when we got there, weren't we? Well, it was, it, there wasn't many people there, so... Well, it was just a guy, wasn't it, yeah. who was there at, at that point. And he was quite a young guy, wasn't he? And, uh, yeah, he, lo- he was sweet and quite kind of apologetic in a, in a way. Like, you know, he was just, you know, you could tell he didn't especially want to be doing his job. He said, right, I need to, to search you again. This is the first time that we were kind of kept together to be searched. Now, this entire time, Nathan wasn't only trying to hide something from the airport security folks. He was also keeping a secret from Emily. So all this time I've had uh, something in my, in my pocket, uh, which I didn't want, um, didn't want Emily to, to know about. Uh, and he uh, patted me down and he, uh, he felt it in my, in my pocket and sort of said, you know, what, what's this? And I remember saying, oh, you've, you've ruined everything. And so then I, I sort of took it out of my pocket and, uh, and he opened it and there was uh, the, the ring. <laughs> hmm. 
so I saw it then. <laughs> uh, and I think I some melodramatic <laughs> burst into tears. Yeah. So, uh, so you came over and uh, and we had a a hug and this this guard was um, I mean he couldn't have been sort of more apologetic really at, yeah. at, at this point because he'd yeah yeah he was really well awkward I guess and you know <laughs> we, it was like potentially quite an intimate moment and <laughs> yeah and then he said let me get you a, a drink and uh and you said um uh champagne <laughs> and he said um uh, I'll get you a sprite <laughs> <laughs> and uh and bless him he did uh uh yeah he went off to the uh, uh went off to the vending machine and um what was a kind of sprite yeah and when were you planning on giving this to emily well i hadn't decided that i definitely was <laughs> i had the conversation with my mother before i uh, uh before i went out so it wasn't um the the final ring that's on emily's finger it is one that i uh, i borrowed from my mum so just before going to the airport and i was like well i might you know maybe like we'll be in Ramallah or something and there'll be a, a beautiful sunset and just you know I just I just want to I want to keep the options open so basically this uh, detention guy kind of pushed you into yeah, yeah. proposing <laughs> yeah, yeah. less romantic though. <laughs> <laughs> like a forced marriage well, you know I, ha- I had the ring so there was clearly there was some intent there but yeah it wasn't it wasn't going to happen at this time anyway back in the detention center We were we were uh, taken outside into like um, an exercise yard, uh, I suppose, with high fences, and we were sitting on these concrete steps. And uh, it was uh, night now, and a pitch black sky. And there was a, uh, I remember a security light at the at the end of the exercise yard, a, a bright white security light shining down on us that sort of looked like a, a, a full moon. Uh, and the guard at this point, he. So he couldn't kind of leave us completely alone, but he was clearly trying to give us a, a, a bit of privacy and he sort of took himself a, a, away to the to the far end or busied himself with some work uh, to give us a bit of space. And uh, there was a, a, a moment of, of calm and, and quiet and we, we sat there together on the step and uh, Emily realised that... You hadn't actually asked me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I'd marry you and we'd just kind of jumped ahead and... Well, I had to start crying. <laughs> yeah, so it was. Uh, yeah, it was time to uh, to actually uh, pop the pop the question, and um, I remembered something that had been said to me earlier that day. So I uh, looked at Emily and said, "I'm going to ask you a question, but before you say anything, I want you to think very, very carefully." because I already know the answer. Cocky. <laughs> well, we'd already done the crying, so it was it was it was it was it was a fair risk to take. Yeah. So, so what did you say? I said yes. <laughs> we have spent the last 6 months trying to track down this guard. We've pulled every possible string, with the army, the police, border control, airport security, even the Shabak. We got nowhere. 
But if you happen to be listening to this, dear Mr. Guard, please get in touch. Emily and Nathan would love to invite you to Bristol for a Sprite. And they have something to tell you. The engagement isn't the end of, you know, it isn't the end of the story. It might be a nice, like, feel like the end of a story in terms of it's a, a neat little narrative arc, but it wasn't the end of our, our time there. And we were, like, for, for that sort of moment of happiness, we weren't, in a, we weren't in a terrific place. After we'd been in the courtyard and he said, you know, that we now had to go to, to the cells and we asked whether we could go together and he, he said that normally we wouldn't be able to but because we were, were now engaged that he'd put us in a what he called a family cell which was a depressing thought so that was it was lovely of him still this was obviously not particularly pleasant you know being locked up was horrible horrible experience and um, the cell was I mean, it felt so sad as well because there was a cot in it for, it literally for was a family yeah, cell. So, you know? Yeah, there was yeah. So there was a cot, and you just kind of imagine a, like a family being locked up and a baby there. Family. Yeah, that well, yeah. So there was sort of Disney stickers, but all sort of peeled off, and and then there was like the most you know pretty vile kind of anti-Semitic graffiti everywhere. Yeah, it was not a, you know, a family suite. You know, um, uh, we shouldn't get carried away. But what it did, um, what it what it meant was that. We were together for the night rather than rather than apart for for the night, and there is an extra bit to this story as well, of course that uh, the guard doesn't know We imagine that maybe he tells people about you know this English couple that got engaged on his watch, but he doesn't know how the story ended actually he doesn't know the the best bit the best bit. The best bit. Uh, so we were we were locked up and we were locked up uh, overnight uh, together and um, and we were newly engaged and uh, yeah all a very conflicted situation but in any case nine months later uh, almost to the day our um, our daughter was born our little girl was was born and um, we named her Ida which is an Arabic name. and it means to return. Nathan first told this story in an essay called Rules of Engagement for the New York Times magazine. We recorded him and Emily in their living room in Bristol. It was literally the middle of the night, and we were all trying to keep it down so as not to wake up Bill, Ida's little brother, who was born this past summer. Happily for him, I guess, he was not conceived in the cell of a detention center. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, if Nathan and Emily's story takes place in a post-9-11 world of heightened security and sniffer dogs, our next story comes from an entirely different era. Act 2, The El Al Stowaway. 
Julie Subrin takes us back to the 60s, and to one 14-year-old boy who just had to fly. Here he is, answering questions back in August 1967. Did you know when you did it what you were doing? I knew what I was doing. I knew I knew I'd get into trouble, but still I thought it may be worth it. How much do you really regret it? Well, I regret the worry I had caused to my parents, that's all. I'm sorry I did it. But I think if I had the same opportunity, I'd do it again. Have you done anything like this before? No. Never. If you're a certain kind of kid, a dreamer, say, maybe something of a loner, foreign places can take on mythic qualities in your imagination. They represent everything your boring old life isn't. For some kids, it's space or the moon. For me, I grew up in the 70s, it was the Soviet Union, where, in my mind, little girls got to wear poofy red bows in their hair and drink hot chocolate all the time since it was so cold outside. For Viktor Rodak, that place was Israel. Victor grew up in Far Rockaway, a scrappy seashore community in Queens, New York. He says the Israel infatuation didn't come from his parents, who only seemed to remember they were Jewish when the high holidays rolled around. Instead, it started with a library book. Called uh, Journey to the Promised Land. It was about a Yemenite family and their trip to Israel, and I discovered Israel. And what impressed me was Israel seemed to be a place where children, I was a child obviously at the time, um, were welcomed. You know, stories about the Holocaust and children who were orphans were brought to Israel and taken care of and given love and attention and all these wonderful things. As the oldest of four kids, maybe Victor felt like those wonderful things were in short supply at home. Anyway, at about that same time, Victor also fell in love with international travel, or at least the idea of it. This, he's sure, came from his mom. My mother, when we were kids, she would take us down to see big ocean liners the day that they sailed, because back then you could visit these big ships. She had the wanderlust. She wanted to travel. She never traveled very much, but she wanted to go to Europe. And we were, if we misbehaved, she'd threaten us and say, if you don't behave, I'm not taking you on the boat to Europe. Around the time of his bar mitzvah, these two passions, Israel and international travel, were starting to converge into some sort of a plan. Victor had studied Israel's history, its monuments and geography and topography, and he was determined, in that way that only a 14-year-old boy can be determined, to get there. One morning, he noticed an ad in the weekend newspaper next to the listings for summer camps and language programs. Come and spend an academic year in Israel. It was for 10th graders. Victor desperately wanted to apply, but there was just one problem. You know, my background was very modest. We, there were four kids in the family. My father was sort of like blue collar. I worked on the waterfront. We lived in public housing, and we had very limited means. But nevertheless, when I saw that particular program, a high school year in Israel, I wrote to uh, that school. I wrote a letter and basically said, look, this is who I am. This is what I want. I don't think it's fair that just the rich kids get to go to Israel. You know, I was, I was a kid. And lo and behold, a week later, I come home from school, and my mother's got this strange expression on her face. And she tells me she got a call from a rabbi affiliated with this program, and they want to figure out a way for me to go. So I was beside myself with excitement. But this was, I should tell you, I guess late May 
1967. The United States feels that a blockade of Israel shipping is illegal. And a few days later, the war started, the June War. A violence settling on the air in a dust of humiliation and Somehow we lost contact, there was no follow-up, I never heard from them again, and that was the end of that. So now, I had to go to a plan B. I had to figure out some other way to get there. Victor lived pretty close to JFK International Airport, and he'd already established himself as kind of an airplane nerd. Uh, in junior high school, I sat in the back of the room and I could see the planes coming in, and I would tell people, oh, that's Alitalia, or that's Erlingus. And when it was an El Alchet, I was, like, very excited. Now he started riding his bike out to JFK and snooping around whenever he got the chance. I would go to the airport, and I was observing how flights were boarded, documentation you needed to get on the plane. And then, uh, as a test case, I... Um, try to get on a plane that was it was a British Airways. At the time, it was BOAC, British Overseas Air Corporation. I just wanted to see how far I could get. So I get down to the tarmac, I go up the steps, no one stops me, and I'm just about to get on the plane when a gentleman in a uniform sees me and asks me, what am I doing there? And I think I said something very naive, like, oh, I just wanted to look. The man in the uniform was not amused. He marched Victor into his office and did his best to scare him straight. Not quite threatening, but telling me I can get into serious trouble, and um, he would tell my father. Victor was undeterred. For me, what I took away from that was I could get on an airplane. Victor knew there was just one direct flight a week from New York to Tel Aviv. That flight left every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. So the day came in August. I think I had an argument with my father just the pretext that I needed to make this decision to go. So I called up my friend Dennis, and it was, you know, with some forethought. I didn't want to just disappear. I felt responsible for my parents. I knew that if I didn't come home, uh, they would freak. They would, you know, it would be horrible. Plus, I had three younger siblings. You know, they needed to have parents, you know. So I was just thinking of all these things. So anyway, I speak to Dennis. He says, okay, oh, he comes to me to the airport. It wasn't the first time. And we go to the LL terminal, and, um, you know, it's that excitement of a departing flight. People are there, they're checking in, luggage everywhere, family everywhere, Hasidim, you know, the, the whole thing. And it dawns on me that um, you need a boarding pass to get on a plane. This was my revelation. Now, it came as a shock because here I'm all set to go, and now what am I going to do? Lo and behold, I see at the check-in desk a pile of these boarding passes. And so I guess maybe the most high-risk moment of this whole thing was walking over to the edge of that desk, that check-in counter, and blatantly just reaching over and taking one. And I really expected someone would see me. But nothing happened. So now I had a boarding pass. I was all set to go. And uh, so now they announce overhead, you know, departure, gate 24. So I knew from my research, everyone's going to go down gate 24. They might have to show tickets, passports, whatever. They'd end up with their boarding pass. But if I went down gate 23, remember, this was in the 60s. There was nobody there. There was no check-in. There was nothing. So everyone's going down gate 24. I go down gate 23. Dennis is with me. We go out the door onto the tarmac. 
And at that point, Dennis says to me, this is crazy. You can't do this. I'm leaving. And so Dennis turns, turns around and just walks away from me. So now, what are my options? Am I going to follow Dennis, like, you know, with my tail between my legs? Victor stayed put. So now I see people getting on the plane, and they had their boarding pass in their hand, but part of their boarding pass was removed. I guess as you go through that door, the flight attendant or somebody takes it off. So they, you know, so I took off the top of mine and put it in my pocket, and I went, like everyone else, with this boarding pass in my hand. And the first decision point was, you know, if people were going up the front of the plane and the back of the plane, it was actually a Boeing 720, so I think it was a 720B, to be precise. Anyway, so I decided to walk towards the front of the plane, and I go up the steps, you know, with everybody else. And now I'm thinking, what am I going to do if there's that seat is taken? You know, what you can't just say, whoops, I'm on the wrong plane, i got to go. You know, was, I knew it would be serious trouble. But I go and I find the seat, and lo and behold, there's nobody in it. So I sit down, it's by the window on the left side. And uh, there's, a, there's a seat in between me and the aisle seat, and there's a woman sitting on the aisle, a very nice young woman. Um, oh, did you ever fly before? She asks me. I said, no, I've never flown before. And, you know, she's just making a pleasant conversation. Then I feel a, a, a hand on my shoulder, and I look up, and it's a flight attendant offering a little basket of candy. Took some candy. And so I'm sitting there, and now I see a guy in a uniform walking down the aisle, counting people. Counting. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, the jig is up. He goes by. Nothing happens. And now it gets very, very quiet. See, they had closed the door. And now they say overhead, you know, something in Hebrew. And suddenly this thing is slowly starting to move. They make the announcement, welcome aboard. You know, they speak in Hebrew and then they say it in English and we're flying to Tel Aviv, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm like in some altered space. You know, you can't imagine how excited I was. But so now we're moving past the terminal and everybody's up there waving at the plane, you know, and that's where I would be in the past, watching the plane leave. And now I'm in the plane and uh, we're proceeding through the taxiways. And now the plane stops and there's another announcement overhead. Now, at this point, I'm very anxious because until the plane gets off the ground, I'm at high risk. Plus, Dennis, my loose cannon buddy, he's out there somewhere. I don't know what he's doing, what he's saying, who he's talking to. So I'm sweating. And so there's this announcement in Hebrew, and the announcement was something like, well, there are, you know, 12 planes ahead of us waiting for takeoff. We will be delayed, you know, 25 minutes. So that's 25 more minutes of suspense. בשם חברת אלעל, הקברניט וצוות המטוס, אני מודה לכם על ההקשבה, ושתהיה לנו יופי של טיסה. But those 25 minutes come and go, and the next thing I know, this plane swings around, and we're on a runway, and it starts to accelerate and make, get very loud, and get very fast, and we're going and going, and suddenly we're up in the air, And I'm um, looking out the window, and the plane actually banks to the left. 
So we're right over Jamaica Bay. Now, remember, I'm from Rockaway, so I know this geography very well. And so now we're flying over the subway line that I just got off, you know, to get to the airport. And then we're flying over Rockaway, and I see the projects where I live. I see Junior High School 198, where I just graduated. A moment later, I see Far Rockaway High School, which I'm supposed to start uh, in the fall. And it's like, goodbye. I was on my way, you know, and then little puffy clouds, and I'm flying over the south shore of Long Island, and it's just amazing. Soon the sun set, and it was dark out the window. The stewardesses came around with dinner trays. I'm just polishing off my dinner when I hear a flight attendant behind me, you know, coming down the aisle, calling someone, and it was, to me, obviously my name. So I ask her, are you looking for me? What's your name? Well, this is my name, Victor Rodek. May I see your ticket? And I tell her, well, I don't have a ticket, but I have a boarding pass. Would you like to see that? And uh, she says, come with me. And I get up and I go with her down the aisle into the cockpit of the plane. Now I'm in the cockpit of the plane. And, you know, it's really, it's dark and all the lights are glowing, those little dials and everything. And it's, uh, and the pilot's sitting right there and he starts talking to me. And I guess maybe the second bravest thing I did was say to him, I'm not going to answer any of your questions unless you promise me my father isn't going to have to pay for this. I can't believe I said that, but I did. And he actually promised. And so I tell him the story. He wants to know, you know, what the deal is. And I explain whatever I had to explain. And that was that. So I'm told to go back to my seat. And as soon as I get outside of the cockpit, I'm surrounded by crew members. And they're all excited. And, you know, they're saying to me, well, you know, if you stay in Israel, I have a son your age. You can come stay with us in Herzliya. I remember that specifically. They were very, very nice. So now I'm going back to my seat. You know, we spend the night on the plane. Now it's the morning. Uh, time goes by. I remember looking down and seeing France with my own eyes. You know, it's like the Massif Central, which is the, the central mountains of central France. And recognizing it and just being thrilled that I'm flying over the Europe, you know, and and then sometime after that, I guess we're by Greece, and then they, the, crew invi- <laughs> the crew invites me up to the front of the aircraft. They have a little compartment there where they, where they stay, I guess. And I'm thinking, oh, isn't this nice? They want me to be with them, you know. And so I go up there, and I'm sitting at the front of the plane. And now, the, the moment I've been waiting for, you know, we're descending, descending, descending. suddenly there's the coastline of Israel. Looking out the window, Victor began to recognize all the landmarks he'd seen in books and magazines. The Hilton Hotel in Tel Aviv, the Mann Auditorium. But this time it wasn't a photograph. It was moving. Little cars were crawling along the roads. People were living their lives, going to work. Victor was stunned. He had actually pulled it off. He was seeing Israel with his own eyes. And so the plane gets lower and lower and lower and lands. And, you know, the engines are reversed, and it gets very, very loud, and then we slow down. And um, I remember being struck by this teeny-weeny little air terminal, you know, coming from JFK. There was this little airport. And um, and now the plane stops, and two police cars are driving out <laughs> to the plane. And I'm the first one off the plane. I'm escorted off by the crew, and I'm put in the back of a police car, and they take me to some place. And I guess I was interrogated. You know, they wanted they had all kinds of questions. There were people there, some in uniform, some not. I remember there was a pregnant woman there. They were all asking me questions. 
it was it was just an interview. And then they sort of ended up by saying, well, this plane is refueling now, it's turning around, and it's going back to New York in an hour, and you're going to be on it. And at that point, I sort of had a fit. I said, no, I didn't want to go back. Please don't make me go back. You see, I'll tell you what my plan was. My plan was to sneak off the plane the same way I snuck on the plane and um, find a bicycle and find a kibbutz. You know, go off on the bicycle, find a kibbutz, and then pretend I didn't know who I was and they'd have to adopt me. I, that was the plan that I had, you know. And it was not going to work, obviously. I was They had me. But I, I, I was still, I wanted to stay. I mean, I came all this way. And so it went on. More questions, more heated debates behind closed doors. Then, finally, the airport security folks presented him with their decision. Okay, we're going to let you stay for one day. But you have to sign this paper that says you're not going to run away. Victor signed, and the clock started ticking. And so then I was taken to the home of, I believe, um, he was either the head of the airline, El Al, or he was the head of the airport. Yep, that's right. After running away from home, sneaking onto an airplane, and traveling roughly 5,600 miles across the world for free, Victor was given the royal treatment. They tried to pack as much of Israel into a single day as they possibly could. Back at the home of the head of El Al or the airport or whoever that guy was, neighbors crowded around Victor like he was some kind of celebrity. After that, he and the official's family went out for a nice bike ride, followed by a tour of Jaffa and Ramla, and then he was bundled into another family's car and whisked away to Jerusalem. We get to Jerusalem, and they bring me to what I've since learned now was the Damascus Gate. And we walked through the Damascus Gate, and suddenly I was in the old city of Jerusalem. And we went all the way to the, the wall, the Kotel, and I put on tefillin, and I said the bracha, whatever you know they told me to do. It was, I was just a state of disbelief. From there, he was shepherded back to Tel Aviv, where he stayed the night. And uh, the following morning, I went with the older son to get bread, and it was just fun to be in this environment of leaving the house, walking down a street, going to a bakery, just like normal life, but in Israel. Victor spent his last few hours touring Tel Aviv with his hosts. The wife took him to the top of the tallest building in town, Migdal Shalom, to get a full view. And, um, and then she took me to the airport, where uh, I was catching the flight back to New York. The return flight was less exciting than the stowaway leg the day before. They made a stop in London, but... I was not allowed off the plane. I had no documents, I had no passport, I had nothing. Then, just over 48 hours after he left, Victor was back where he started, at JFK Airport. He stepped off the plane, preparing himself for his parents' wrath and whatever other fallout was coming his way. It was dark by then, and uh, we were met by um, an El Al, I guess, a PR person, I mean, a tall, beautiful woman, uh, who led me into a room where there were reporters, and I actually had a news conference. Victor still has a recording of that interview on a vinyl record. Hello, Vic. Hello. How do you feel? Fine and tired. What did you do? Just took a plane to Israel. 
my, my parents were there, and these reporters were there, and you know, some other folks were there, neighbors of ours. And they interviewed me. I went on and I took the seat. And the decision was just impulsive. I just felt like leaving. I've always wanted to go to Israel. Why? I belong in Israel. It's my country. When you said you just wanted to go, was it uh, that you wanted to get away from home for a while? Possibly. I'm not sure myself. I just felt like leaving. That's why I left. So how do you feel now that you've been over there? Did you like it? I enjoyed it. I had a wonderful time in Israel. Would you go back? Yes, I would, and I will. The same way? No, I'll be a paying passenger. At the end of this impromptu press conference, the reporters turned to Victor's father. Mr. Rodak, it's traditionally Dad's job to administer discipline. Have you given any consideration as to what you're going to do? Well, I think when we get home, we're going to have a long talk. My wife and I will decide on what, we'll, what we will do in regard to Victor. Are you a whipping father, or do you rely on psychology? No, I, I can understand some of the things that motivated him, but I certainly do not condone what he did. And we're going to take that up when we do get home. Does L.L. feel that you'll have to pay? I have no idea at this time. What if you do? <laughs> well... He's going to have empty pockets for a long time. And then I went home. My parents, you know, I, I got a ride home with neighbors. We drove back to the house, and bingo, I was back. Of course, there were consequences. Victor's parents were very upset with him. They sent me to see a shrink, which I guess, you know, was to their credit. Uh, it was probably not a bad idea, but I was mortified at the time. So these are my souvenirs. Victor shows us a collection of yellowed postcards and newspaper clippings. Boys ad lib trip to Israel, Long Island Press. I have an article here from L'Information, which is a French-Israeli newspaper. This is from the New York Times, this little bit. My son, the Globetrotter, from New York Post. That's me with my mother. There he is in a faded photo, a perfect specimen of early adolescence, taller than his mom, but shorter than his dad, skinny, and with a sheepish, boyish grin and just a hint of pride. Those 48 hours made Victor kind of famous around the neighborhood and at Far Rockaway High School. To this day, on the school's listserv, people post things like, I would love to find out whatever happened to Victor Rodak, class of 70. He achieved notoriety when he stowed away on an El Al flight to Israel. Rumor has it he may be in Jackson Heights. Anyone know anything regarding his whereabouts? When he was asked about it at the time, in August 1967, Victor was pretty sure about his future. Do you think you'd like to go back there to, to live or to study? Yes, definitely. So you said you're going back. I just wonder what makes you so definite. I just am. I know I will. It's inevitable. Given all that, you might expect that Victor headed off to join the IDF for a kibbutz just as soon as he was old enough. But over time, Israel, that faraway place that welcomes lonely children from everywhere, was replaced in his mind with a more complicated reality, one he visits and loves, but not somewhere he sees himself living. Still, he's got those souvenirs and newspaper clippings in that vinyl record to remind him that when he was just 14, he made the trip of a lifetime. Julie Subrin. Today, Victor Rodak's a psychiatrist and lives in Queens, not that far from JFK. 
A special thanks to Paul Ruest, Esther Werdiger, who first told us about Victor, and to Sarah Ivry, who helped produce the piece. A version of that story first aired on Vox Tablet, which is Tablet Magazine's wonderful podcast, hosted by Sarah Avery. I'm a huge fan, and if you don't already know it, I strongly recommend you check it out. Twice a month, Sarah talks to fascinating people. I really loved her recent interview with Geza Rorick, the star of the haunting film Son of Saul. And that is our episode. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on all our previous episodes. Just search for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, we're looking for a sponsor. That lucky company or organization who doesn't yet know it, but is about to become the next MailChimp or Stamps.com. So if you want to support our show and reach a dedicated and rapidly growing audience, email us at sponsor at prx.org. A big thanks to Sharon Saeg and Josh Berger for today's episode. And, this is a first on our show, a special shout-out to our dear newlywed listeners Esti and Michael Hirschfield, who just got married in New York. Mazal tov, mazal tov, from your friends Becca Youngerman and Mark Aronson, and all of us here at Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Benny Becker, and Shoshi Shmulovitz. Rachel Fisher and Sophie Shore are wonderful production interns. Our executive producer is Julie Subrin. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then, Happy New Year's, and yalla bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.